This is MC Fireside Chats, a weekly show devoted to the outdoor hospitality industry, hosted by Brian Searle and Kara Sismadia. You'll hear from special guests that focus on topics to help your business succeed, all backed by Modern Campground, the most innovative news source in the industry. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of MC Fireside Chats. My name is Brian Stewart with Insider Perks, here as always with Shane Devinish, who is our new host today, because Kara couldn't make it. She's in a meeting for RVDA of Alberta, so Shane has graciously not volunteered to be the host today, but I have nominated him anyways. So welcome, Shane. Thanks for being here with us. But we're super excited to have our RV uh, outdoor recreation show here happening. As always, uh, the fourth week of the month, we've been doing it in 2022. So we've got Eleanor Ham from RVDA of Canada. We've got Phil Ingracia back with us. We missed uh, last week, last month uh, with RVDA of America, just RVDA in general. I don't know, Phil. Like, I feel RVDA like. RVDA of All right. RVDA of the U.S. And then we've got, obviously, Kurt Rapanchik. Did I do that right, Kurt? Well, you got Kurt right. <laughs> Kurt Rep. Let's say it. Rep and check. Rep and check. Rep and check. Rep and check. Okay. I told you I wouldn't get that wrong, and then I got it wrong again. So Kurt Urbanchek from National Parks Traveler is going to tell us all about uh, some cool things that are happening in the outdoor rec industry and things like that. So really appreciate you all tuning in and being here with us. So where do we want to start today? Let's, you know what? Let's start, Shane, with you, since you're the co-host, right? Talk a little bit about the Toronto Spring Camping and Outdoor, or Toronto Spring Camping and RV Show and Sale. Yes. Perfect. Just come up with a cool acronym for it. You you said that a lot better than Kurt's last name. That's right. It's hard to do worse than (laughs) butchering somebody's last name. But tell us, yeah, tell us about your show. It just wrapped up as the first in-person RV show that had happened in Canada so far since the beginning of the pandemic and lots of excitement things going on. So you want to touch on that briefly? Yeah, actually, it was the second one. The first one, I think, was out in BC. And then the the last one uh, in Moncton, New Brunswick, was just uh, last week. We were really fortunate to be able to have, have the show. And it was hard because at the beginning of January, we were in lockdown and not sure whether uh, we could even have an event. And then by the time our event started, which was March 3rd, we were fortunate that cases, for a lot of reasons, the cases started to improve. And then the province opened up to 100% attendance and no uh, proof of vaccination right before the show started. We were fortunate that we didn't have to discriminate anybody and people came, they felt safe. We made sure that they were safe. But the most important thing is the dealers sold a lot of product. Probably I can say they sold more product during the show, even though the number of dealers were half. The overall number of number of units and total retail amount was the highest ever been in the history of the show. So. I think it was a, a combination of the guys who had product were the guys that came in, but they had big product. They had bigger units, uh, higher price. The demand was there, for, certainly for the, the consumers. We were really worried about the inflation and the, whether there was going to be sticker shock or not, and didn't seem to be, which was pleasantly surprising for us. So overall, Brian, we were, you know, 
extremely happy with the way things went. So now let me ask you a question as it relates to you're talking about the inventory issues and the people who and the guys who brought in inventory were the bigger units that were more expensive. I was at the Calgary Outdoor Adventure Show over the, this past weekend and, and we were seeing a lot of those smaller trailers on display and then obviously that's a different kind of environment, right? You don't have the big show space floor to have the RVs in there, but do you see that? And maybe all of you can chime in and comment on this if you want. Do you see that trend that we're hearing about? Is that picking up steam where people want more of these smaller rigs than they do the larger ones? Yeah, interesting uh, question. Absolutely. And the feedback after the show is they're disappointed that there wasn't more pop-ups and, and smaller units. As show organizers, and I'd be interesting to talk to some of the guys in the U.S., dealers want to show bigger, bigger units at shows. Contrary to what I think the CRVA, what we would like to see, we would like to see a more rounded number of the models from smallest to, to largest at any show. But if a dealer has exhibit space, they want to have a, a bigger unit where they can make a, a bigger margin on it. And versus maybe your outdoor show, Brian, the guys probably don't have the space, so they, they're showing a smaller unit. We, we would frankly rather have dealers bring a more diverse uh, selection, but it's sometimes hard to convince. So let's toss it to Eleanor and Phil, who we have here. Phil and Eleanor, what are your thoughts on a variety of units at shows? Does it help? Does it hurt? What are you healing from your dealers, both in the U.S. and Canada? In the U.S., I think it just depends on the size of the show. For instance, if uh, you're at the Florida RV Super Show in Tampa every year, you'll see everything from teardrops to the big diesel pushers. Dealers certainly bring a wide variety to that show. In other shows where it's more real estate is more limited, they certainly will focus on perhaps their most most expensive product because they need to get a lot of people to see those to pay, perhaps move those. Okay. It's in our experience, the lower price models are those turn. Those will have a higher turn rate on the lot. And so when dealers because spend it's less a lot of, a... of money on a show, they'll wanna they'll wanna put the the higher price units out there. But I do think over the years, especially in the last five years, we're seeing a lot more diversity of product, at least here in the U.S. Yeah, it's the same in Canada, although the shows, we've had, we haven't had as many shows as there have been in the U.S. And we always, we would echo Shane's comments that a variety is, is probably the best for the consumer so they can decide where they want to go. But when you do see the larger motorized units, which motorized is a smaller segment of the overall industry, but when you do see some of the units, there's also that left in terms of this is, there, there's some spectacular units out there for people to see. And I think at an RV show, it's a little bit different necessarily than the outdoor show you may have people that are interested in the outdoors and they may sure. not necessarily be RVers. So they might be more looking, maybe haven't even considered RVing. They're still tenters and that entry-level product just may need a better fit for a show like that to just introduce people uh, to get into the industry versus if you had a class A, <laughs> a diesel pusher in there, you might be scaring some people away. <laughs> actually. It's a big jump for your first Camper. Yeah, for your first RV. Right. Yeah, for your first RV. But in general, are you seeing this trend? Like when you say entry level, and I completely understand it from an outdoor adventure show, right? Like it wasn't an RV show. There were only three people there. There was a dealer there, but they were clearly focused on that entry level market, like you say. But is it still entry level or are there more people that are shifting toward this is what I want first, second, third, fourth time? versus something bigger, not obviously gas prices is an impact now, but just in general from a millennial, younger, more people getting into the industry. I, I, we just did our year end stats and the pop-up 
uh, camper market went up significantly last year. And if we go back to when, when we were young, I can speak, maybe you guys are a lot younger than me, people had pop-ups, they bought it and it was their first unit and then they traded it in and it eventually built themselves up. We've missed that as an industry. People got away from pop-up, certainly in Canada, I think as we lost, um, some manufacturers in the, maybe 2010 and the manufacturers weren't building them to the extent of, of what they were before. So uh, hopefully that trend gets a little bit better and, and we can get more affordable. I think we lost Shane's audio. Shane, we can't hear you anymore. Just to piggyback on what Shane was saying, I think one of the things that I've noticed at U.S. shows is the proliferation of van campers, type B motorhomes have really increased in visibility. Certainly that's good news for Canada because a lot of those B vans are produced in Canada, but also in the U.S. you've seen companies like Winnebago and Thor really get into that market in ways that they weren't 10 years ago. So I think as we look at the whole RV market, there's so much more diversity I think on dealer lots and at shows than we had 10 years ago, because you've got uh, a real strong first time buyer market coming in, even prior to the pandemic, who tend to gravitate towards the more entry level, smaller equipment, at least for a first time purchase. And we've got teardrops and things like that, which really were below the noise level. When I first got in the RV business, it was bigger is better all the time. And we've seen the manufacturers and the dealers react to this changing market by really showing a, a lot more different types of products, both on the lot and at shows. Yeah. And I'll yeah. admit, go ahead, please. Change. I was just wondering how the supply chain is impacting things. You've got these RV shows and they bring out their newest and their biggest and their best. What's the delivery schedule looking like? Last fall, I think I went to, to look at one of Airstream's new trailers and they said it. I think they told me it was six, six months or 16 months out because they just couldn't manufacture enough. And with the supply chain problems, how has that impacted sales and deliveries? We've been surveying U.S. dealers every month on that, and it's gotten a lot better uh, than even it was uh, six months ago. We expect on the travel trailer side, second or maybe early third quarter to be almost back to par as far as quote unquote, normal inventory levels in the U S now motorized is going to be a different story because they're more dependent on obviously the chassis and the chips that the automakers are expressing the, the, the problems with. We are seeing on the total side now certain models, and I think Airstream was one of them, they're out, they're backlogged quite a bit further out, but for more, I guess the more entry level stuff, those products are starting to hit dealer lots. And, and we're getting back to a more normalized inventory level. I don't know what it is up in Canada, Eleanor. Yeah, it's similar. I would say units are coming. Obviously the added issue of just ensuring that we can get units across the border, ensure enough drivers to be able to bring up. But I think on the towable side, it seems that dealer inventories in the U.S. are pretty full. And so now dealer towable inventory is going to be, by the time camping season starts, which is probably within the next month or so, is going to be 
pretty good on the dealer's lots in Canada. We're still seeing the same issues with motorized, even if the class B manufacturers in Canada, some of them are out of year, maybe two, <laughs> in terms of having product and to the point of the nearest stream. And we've got some niche markets where it's a very specific product, uh, where dealers are patterned basically. Like it's simply on the order of the Tesla will get a bit more time when it happens. So hopefully, right? Consumers that just a specific product, still less flexibility that you know to try to get to like to do much sooner than later to just that to the beats. Yeah, Kurt, I think it's all expectation. You try to you know explain the situation for the customers, and hopefully they don't get um, too cranky when you tell them it's going to be a little bit longer. But the fact is, if they want a unit by today and get it say six months down the road and you wait a week and it could be longer. There's some urgency, I think, to make the decision sooner rather than later. And I think that's what the guys at the, the shows were, were telling them, Hey, the sooner you, sooner you buy it, the sooner you're going to get it. I, I talked to somebody about the Miami boat show and everything in that show was sold and they were, they were being told if you wanted to buy a boat, it was two years. Then it's just the way things are. You try to, you try to get your orders in and then just wait. What about the use? What about the used market? If I can interrupt you, Brian, <laughs> I know two years ago when the, um, coronavirus struck and it started, a lot of people are rushing out to buy their RVs and I've got an RV writer who's been on the road since 2007. And we were speculating that after a year or two, you'd see a lot of those newly purchased RVs coming back onto the used market because the buyers realized that it wasn't their lifestyle. We've been in the field with some research for, through Go RV. I think a lot of people were thinking that oh, this is just a pandemic purchase and we're going to trade it in and get back on a cruise ship or hop on a plane to go to Europe or whatever their vacation option that was delayed. But right, so far we haven't seen it. Certainly there's some anecdotal stories about somebody who didn't like it or got into it, but by and large, the people who have bought during the pandemic have enjoyed their experience. Even though we were very concerned about campgrounds, they were able to find campgrounds to use and, and, and enjoy their purchase. So at least for now, we haven't seen this mass trade in and trade out type of uh, scenario and dealers in the U S anyway, are still beating the bushes for late models. So there's a lot of activity out there of dealers really trying to find used units to stock. Well, the really old RVs, dealers tend to stay away from those because of all kinds of different issues as far as trying to find parts and that kind of thing. So there's still a, a pretty brisk private sale market for that kind of vintage travel trailers, if you want to call them that. But, but late model use is still, is still pretty scarce out there. And, and thankfully we're not seeing a, a ton of people trading in units that, because they bought them during the pandemic. At least not yet. And I, I think if you do, sorry, LeBron, do you want to go or? Oh, no, go ahead, yeah. please. Yeah. And I think it, uh, the demand's still there, Kurt. So I think if you see some people that if, if it was for them, now that we get out of the pandemic, there's somebody else out there that's waiting for a unit. So I don't think the industry is going to lose any, any RVs out there on the road. I think we're just going to gain the ones that are going to be happy with the getting in the lifestyle. So you make a good point. I agree with you. I don't think, and again, it, what I know about the, what I don't know about the RV industry is math, right? I'm learning show by show, show, but uh, I think you're right that I don't think you're going to lose any of those campers. But my overall question is, 
does the how let's focus on behavior for a second so does the inventory shortage let's just start there does that change the behavior of consumers as far as what they're buying how they're camping what they're doing even if it's just temporarily in other words if i'm a buyer do i purchase that big rv and do i wait six months or however long it takes to get it or longer in the case of an airstream do i temporarily buy an entry-level unit do i just not go camping for six months what am i doing yeah i think you're if you're buying let's say something that's going to be out i've had a few dealers tell me this they their consumer's not going to get the product for a year or two and if they really want to go camping they're going to buy something that's a little bit cheaper a uh, little bit uh, more affordable and maybe lower, you know, maybe a towable versus motorized because they really do embrace the lifestyle. It's a lifestyle and they don't want to give that up. The, the great thing right now in terms of used product is that it does hold its value. So we've been seeing some people that are purchasing not maybe their final model or what they're really wanting, but something in between and that they'll likely trade that in when there comes in. Yeah. At from the dealership. So and because there's such a demand even for used product, uh, to, uh, that's the way they're addressing it. And and to Kurt's point to the dealers, they we've had some dealers have said, no, some people have brought their unit back and just decided that uh, they've tried it, going to try to find other vacation options uh, now, but ultimately they've got other customers that are lined up that are still waiting. So it's right off outside that used product. Okay. Uh, and then what about other consumer behavior? So not just the purchase of the vehicles, but is the, is the impact of, and I know gas prices is on the minds of everybody and how inflation overall is going to impact this, but I feel like we've talked about that enough, but do the, are these people, and, and I, we have an audience of campground owners too, right? So are these people still going, maybe they're downgrading, maybe they're upgrading. Are they going glamping in the interim? Are they staying in cabins? Are they utilizing tents? Do we have any sense of, of that? Is there an inventory shortage? Is that impacting purchase behavior? We obviously know above sites is what I mean. Sorry. An inventory shortage of campsites. There's a definite shortage of campsites. People are going to have to shop around a little bit more. But if, if I'm hearing your question, is the shortage perhaps uh, of travel trailers and inventory, meaning that people are going and they still want to camp, they don't have a unit yet. Are they going clamping? Is that... Or are, they, yeah. are they still staying in the industry is, is what I, because we have camp runners who are watching the show. And what I'm admittedly trying to do is we're having a broader discussion about the RV industry outdoor rec, but we still are very cognizant of the fact that we have owners on here. And so I want to tie in the industry a little bit and, and not necessarily reassure owners, because I think that the demand is already huge and it's not going down anytime soon. And they're all, uh, if you're doing any kind of marketing, you're having huge success filling up your park. But are they still going, are they putting off their camping lifestyle? I think if you've already had an RV, like Eleanor said, that's a lifestyle you have, you don't want to get up, give up. But if I'm new and this is my first purchase, big, small, whatever it is, am I putting my camping on hold or am I still going? And maybe Shane, it's a, you can speak to that more than anybody else being CCRVC too. Yeah, I think they're still going for sure. And if for those, those campground owners, they're probably seeing their rental units and the glamping, be it a tent or a wagon or whatever. They have the demand for those is, is going way up because I, I think the interest of everybody throughout this is to get outdoors and spend more time with their family. And if they don't have an RV, then they still want to go camping and take advantage of something that's already on site, be it whatever, whatever rental unit that the campground may have. I think I expected that answer. Sorry, owner, go ahead. I was going to say, there's also an opportunity in terms of 
the rental units themselves, not necessarily those that are at the campground, but we have a large rental industry and that's just grown over the last five years with peer-to-peer rentals as well. If I can't find a unit from a rental company where I'm not going to be getting my unit for however many months, there are a lot of peer-to-peer companies that will allow you to, to, to have access to a variety of different units, different places over the season. So I, I, I still think that consumers will be out there and will be going to the campgrounds. That's a good point. So you're talking about the RV easies, the RV shares, the outdoorsies, the there's lots of other companies. I'm just calling out the people that I know off the top of my head, right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It, it was in the back of my head. I just didn't put those. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, Brian, one thing I can toss in there is because of this increased demand, whether it sales are up 60% or whatnot, finding a campground, at least in the park system or the, the federal lands in the U.S. is a challenge because there is such great demand and more and more national park campgrounds and a lot of Bureau of Land Management and maybe even Forest Service campgrounds are moving to recreation.gov. I'm not sure if you're familiar with that, but it's a, an internet portal which draws as many complaints as craze in terms of ease of um, booking a site. It's just, it's really hard because of the different internet service vagaries that you have out there in terms of uh, speed. If you have a fiber optics line, you'll be able to get a whole, uh, a big jump on everybody else in terms of reserving a campsite. Uh, we get so many complaints at National Parks Traveler about, I, I clicked at eight o'clock to get that campsite and they said it was, so that's a real issue. I do think in light of the, the crowds going to the national parks here in the United States, more people are going to be looking to other public lands and the forest service lands and whatnot, and, and even boondocking, if they've got the capabilities to do that. I, I have noticed at least one park in the United States, Great Basin National Park, is upgrading one of its campgrounds to add more RV sites. And um, they're going through the um, public comment process right now. But I think uh, you're looking at adding 40 to 50 foot pull-through sites and with some hookups. I don't think it'll be a full hookup, but with some. And it'll be curious to watch to see if other parks start to do the same thing. I know not all park superintendents want to enlarge their campsites, their campgrounds, but in parts where it's possible and where they're open to it, we might see more space. You bring up a good point too with behavior, right, Kurt? And maybe you can speak to this, maybe you can't. I don't know if you've done any research, you've come across any articles, but as we talk about inventory purely from a private campground perspective normally, because that's just what I deal with more than anything else. If, if you look at it from a national park perspective, as these national parks, the popular ones especially, have already started to fill up, and there was an inventory shortage long before COVID, I feel like it's some of the more popular ones. But is that behavior shifting them to other national parks that are lesser known? Is it pushing them toward different types of public lands, toward boondocking? Is it pushing them toward private campgrounds? Do you have a sense of that behavior? Not really. I, I can tell you that the, the National Park Service is concerned about where people are going. Last year, I think there was 300 million visitors to the U.S. National Park System, and 50%, 50% of those visitors went to just 25 of the Yellowstones, the Grand Tetons, the glaciers. And so there's a real concern from the National Park Service that we've got to get these people to move around. It's overloading a handful of parks, while these other parks that are just as wonderful are going without. And so there's a concern from the park service to try and encourage that movement. And, and here at the traveler, we're trying to do that too, by, by writing more stories about overlooked gems, as we call them. That's great. I'm really glad to hear that because certainly through our national organization, outdoor recreation Roundtable, we are encouraging 
visitors to lesser known national parks. And another hidden gem, if you will, are the state park systems out there across the country. Many wonderful state parks that are underutilized in places like Indiana, Minnesota, Iowa, that really not only are they great places to stay for the RVer, but it also is an economic driver for those com local communities and really helps support rural economic development, which is a huge thing in the United States Congress as we see the economic growth around, around cities and suburban areas outpace that of rural areas. I think that's, that's something incumbent of all of us in outdoor recreation is to get the word out that you don't have to go to the, these, the marquee parks. There are other places to go throughout the U.S. to enjoy your RV or more rustic camping experience. I'm, I'm wondering, it's in Canada, it's the same, but is the budgets from some of these national parks, are they, are they so uh, small that it, instead of us asking or the consumers asking where they can go, shouldn't it be the other way around? Shouldn't it be the park saying, come to us and advertise, hey, we got room? That's, that's what recreation.gov is supposed to be facilitating. Right, Kurt. One of the big reasons that, that they had a big overhaul here within the last couple of years is to make it easier to disperse the, the demand across a wider variety of parks. And certainly through the Great American Outdoors Act, the funding is available to, to expand and maintain these campgrounds that maybe weren't, weren't up to par for RVers and other camp, but the, a lot of it comes from the park and what their plans are and what the park superintendent wants to do. And I think as, as more success stories about, one thing about RVs is it's not the dispersed camping where you don't, don't necessarily know where everybody's going sometimes. If it's done properly on public lands, you can really plan for the use, which not only is a better experience for the end user, but also saves the resources, right? Because you don't have people just randomly camping where they, where maybe it's not as appropriate to camp. If I could get down into the weeds a little bit, Shane, the National Park Service is not authorized to market. They, they don't have a public relations arm. They, they can't go out there and tell you to go visit the the Fort Laramies or the, the tall grass prairies of the national park system. That's not part of their mission, which seems odd. I know in terms of funding, the great American outdoors act has, has done a great job so far. It's funneling hundreds of millions of dollars into the park system, much of it going to some of the brand name parks. And as much as Congress got behind the great American outdoors act a couple of years ago to try and address the maintenance backlog, I think it. It provides six and a half billion dollars, Phil, is that right? Over five years. At the time, the, the backlog was 12 or $13 billion. The, the Park Service stopped telling us what that backlog was, which is another curious move. But in the latest federal budget um, bill approved by Congress, the National Park Service, which is overwhelmed with visitors, got just a 3% increase in operations budget, 2.9%. And they're drastically down in staffing to provide the, the ranger interpretive programs in many of these parks. And so it's a real dilemma. They've got incredible visitation. People want to get out there and see the, the parks and learn about the parks. And the Congress is not providing the, the necessary funding and resources to the park service for that. 
So one of the things I want to touch on here, just because we've got a lot of private campground owners and Jacob Marler asked or put a question in here, or do people just start using the vast amount of, this is Canada, for example, uh, Crown Land available in Canada or BLM in the United States, instead of using traditional campgrounds. Now, Phil and I, you've had this kind of, we've had this conversation a little bit on the phone before. Uh, and I know, Kurt, you've brought it up before. It was either me or on a show. I can't remember where. But I feel like this is this inventory shortage is actually a great thing for the entire industry. Obviously, we need more sites. We want to build them. We want more campers, all those kinds of things. Not from that perspective, but from a, the whole industry is interconnected together. And I, I'm sure you guys can touch on this briefly, better, much better than I can. But the private campground industry is not being replaced by national parks, replaced by the Great American Outdoors Act, replaced by public lands and boondocking. I think there's different types of RVers going different places. I think the National Parks Service and public lands and state parks are feeding both private campgrounds and those places. And do you, either you gentlemen or Eleanor or Shane want to touch on how that kind of all works together and they complement each other versus compete? I'll just make a comment. I had a conversation yesterday with one of our members and th and the problem is that more campgrounds are going to seasonal sites and you're not seeing the, the transient business, which is really concerning to me, I'm sure Eleanor too, because not everybody wants to be seasonal. People want to travel around. And so if those transient sites aren't available at campgrounds, they need to find something else and another place to go and Crownland for sure, Harvest Hosts, other experience. There's a Quebec firm called, I believe it's Terrago. They were in our show and they said their business was booming there. People need to find different experiences, not being, you know, the campground association. I don't want to dissuade people from going to our great campgrounds, but if they're full, we need to find alternative experiences to move people around. Yeah. Well, that's ultimately, go ahead, Eleanor. Yeah. And the crown land is really going to depend on where you're at, what's available. There are opportunities. There, I think you can camp on Crown Land, I think up to 14 days, at least in the province of British Columbia, I think, depending on who oversees it. So there's definitely some opportunities. And generally that type of camper may be very different than a camper that wants to stay in a, in a resort facility that has pools and, and activities for children. It's definitely an opportunity that I think our industry can perhaps tap into a little bit better. And I don't see it as necessarily competing with the private campground operators. Well, and that's the thing. I don't think any... any and I'm going to be bold and say, I don't think any of us do, but and, and like Shane, you're talking about this fine line you walk and, and I see it in the Facebook groups too. I think the overwhelming majority, just speaking from a U.S. perspective for a second, is that the Great American Outdoors Act is a phenomenal piece of legislation, as great, as amazing, as, as whatever. But I think there's also a lot of concern from a probably a lack of knowledge standpoint that this money is just intended to compete with private campgrounds and I think I know, I feel like I know it's not. Is that correct, Phil? Certainly that's not the intent to compete with private campgrounds. One of the things that we've been talking about is the diversity of experiences that people want. And as some more campgrounds go to seasonal type models, there's going to be a, there's going to be a, a vacuum in the market for the, the transient business. And so what is, what's happening? That's how Harvest Host fills a need. That's how the, the state parks say we can be in this business as well. Even local economic development authorities and things like that are getting into campground, the campground business, if you will, because there's, there's not enough uh, capacity in the area or the campgrounds there are full and are doing the seasonal stuff. I think we, 
look, the, the RV buyer, I don't know of anybody, I'm sure there are people like this, but say, oh, I only go to private. Oh, I only go to public. They, it's, they're going for a reason. And so they'll go and they're going to be outside. So they'll go to private if it works for them that time, or they'll go to a, a public campground if it works for them another time. So the idea of the scarcity mentality, I'm not sure it's, I understand it, but I'm not sure it's the, the really that I think that there's a room enough for everybody and all the different types of camping that people want to do. I agree with you and that I understand this is uncomfortable. I don't know what to say question. And it is for me too, because I deal with a lot of these private campgrounds, but I think that's what I'm trying to just hammer home here is that there is no, there is some overlap, but it's not a competition among each other, especially because again, we've talked about different amenities, different types of campers, different behavior. People are doing both, you know, maybe one here, one there, but also the national parks and, and Kurt, I want to ask you, I have a question for you in a second, but the national parks and the public lands and those attractions are feeding the private campgrounds that surround them as well. Not just from an inventory shortage standpoint, from a people who want to see the national park, but maybe want more amenities like a pool and things like that. And so part of my goal with creating this RV industry show and having you guys on it is, is to deepen the ties of everybody's relationship with each other and see that all the work that you're doing feeds everything else. I don't know if that makes sense, but yeah, in, in a way, if I'm a private campground owner and I'm full and I have all these customers coming to me looking for uh, sites. And I keep on having to tell them that I'm sorry, I'm full. They're going to get upset and maybe leave the industry. Maybe I'm not full and I don't have those, those customers anymore. So uh, my point is it's good to have alternatives out there for, from the viewpoint of a private campground owner, because, okay, I'm doing really well and I'm full. I want to still take care of my prospective customers. So I'm glad to see them find alternative places to go. If that makes any sense. And I think, I think one of the does. things too, that they're, that I, I understand campground owners that they don't like unfair competition, right? Where it's not market-based pricing or whatever. And certainly I think the, the RV industry and the, the private campground industry have helped educate the public campground people about that this is a sensitive topic. And so there is a way for everybody to to gain from this, but we do have to work together to understand the long game versus the, the short gain, the short game of, okay, I lost some camper nights or whatever, because of a public campground in the area. We just need to, we need to have a good dialogue on that. And certainly I think that is happening now more than ever. And the other thing I think too, is allowing private campground operators to operate on public lands as well, getting rid of the red tape that prevents that kind of activity where you've got the professional private campground actually operating the, pub, uh, the campground on the public property is another way to get through this whole dilemma that we face. Yeah, I think part of it also is education and information. Everybody wants to go to the national parks and so the national park websites are really hit by a wide range of the public looking for things to do. Are the Forest Service websites the same thing? Are they attracting that type of attention? What about the BLM lands? And up in Canada, there's probably the same situation going on out there. As I mentioned during our last show a month ago, we're working on a RVing guide to the national park system. 
And the writer who's been working with me on it said, what about neighboring lands, forest service campgrounds and whatnot, BLM campgrounds close to national parks. And right now that's a little bit more that I want you off on just because there are over 250 campgrounds in the national park system that have RV spaces available that we're trying to provide all the up-to-date information on that. At the same time, we are open to, to taking advertisements of say the KOA outside the park or the other privately owned campground. We want to be a conduit for information where when you go to the national park or recreation.gov and find that your uh, campground is full for the next six months, you want to be able to tell people, well, here's another option that you can look at. And I think that's really valuable. A lot of the park service do point to um, surrounding communities and, and camping operations there. I'm planning a, a road trip this summer, driving out to Iowa from Utah and back through Kansas and Colorado. And some of the parks I want to go visit at, they don't have campgrounds, but they have a link to the, the local lodging possibilities. And so I, I just think greater knowledge and information that's out there would help disseminate some of these crowds and open up the rise to some of these other wonders. Phil, you're absolutely right about the, the state campgrounds. I know state parks, Snell Canyon State Park in Utah is gorgeous. It should be part of the national park system. I think we should take it over. I think some of that is, is, is good advice for private park owners too, where you're talking about with the forest service websites and BLM lands, advertising local private campgrounds too, in some cases, if they don't know you exist and they can't advertise you. And so you as a private park owner, maybe you need to be doing some outreach to some of these places and reaching out to, I don't know who the contact would be, if that's a national state, whatever level that is, obviously depending on the park, but seeing if you can get a partnership going where if they don't have a campground that they're putting you there and recommending you, or even if they do as an alternative or something like that. But Kurt, I want to give you a couple minutes to talk about outdoor rec in general. What are some things that discount RVing and camping for a second, but just start, what are some of the things that are exciting you in the national park system that may end up exciting people to want to travel to those specific areas and in turn feed to camping? Boy, that's a tough question. I know that's I a... Can I get back to that? Just put you on the spot question, but there's a lot of discussion going on in the park service and in some corners of Congress about how to deal with this visitation and how to spread it out. What's exciting to me is how the great American outdoors act dollars are going to work. Maybe it's just that the, the Biden administration is better at promoting what's going on out there in public lands versus the, the Trump administration. But just about every week I'm hearing about a project that is funded by the great American outdoors act. And they're not all dollars going to the big parks. A lot of the smaller parks are starting to see some, some benefits. One thing we might see later this year in Big Bend is in the middle between the small park and the big parks. It's big acreage wise, but it's, it only saw, I think about 530,000 visitors last year versus almost 5 million for Yellowstone, but they're looking at getting funding to build a new lodge to replace a lodge that has some, some structural deficiencies to it because of geological project processes. And so I, I think there's a lot of attention being focused on the park service with the new director out there. How can we better deal with this visitation? And, and I'm hoping that Congress really gets behind that realization that park service doesn't have the staff in all the corners to, to deal with this visitation. So let me rephrase the question maybe and try to get to where I was going. And maybe Phil, you want to touch on this a little bit with, with ORR, with your work there. Let's stick with Great American Outdoors Act for a second. Let's say to Phil and if you know anything and to, to Kirk, since you write so many articles, what are some places where you've seen dollars go from the Great American Outdoors Act that you feel will increase visitation to those specific areas in 2022 and beyond? Well, I don't well, I, go ahead. Go ahead. 
Well, but, I've seen overall, I've seen some overall numbers and I look at them with my RV glasses on, if you will, a lot of the, and I'm going to get an update on this next week at our outdoor recreation roundtable board meeting. But from what I like to see is access is one of the big things as far as road improvements and parking lots and campground facilities like water systems that are very important to protect. For instance, in Shenandoah National Park, just a few years ago, the largest campground there was shut down all summer long because it had a, a sewer failure. Those are the kind of things that, that are really important to fix. And that's what the Great American Outdoors Act is helping to accelerate. And, and Kurt, you're seeing almost weekly announcements from all corners of the national park system some in the forest system as well, talking about improvements that they're making to various recreational facilities, all due to Great American Outdoors Act. And I think if there's one thing in uh, Congress that people can agree on, it is uh, protecting the public lands and maintaining them. And hopefully we'll move some other legislation later on this year, even though it, it's a off-year election year, it's still, it's still a very bipartisan type of activity to fund the, the National Park Service and other public lands. One thing I think people need to be aware of also is with this money going into the parks to repair things, it is going to impact access. A perfect example is Yellowstone National Park, where they're going to be rebuilding two bridges and doing some road work. And it's the 150th anniversary of Yellowstone. People are excited about that. They want to go see the park. And if you're coming in from the south entrance, you're going to have some delays as they replace a, a major bridge inside the, the park there. At Rocky Mountain National Park in Colorado, they're talking about doing some significant upgrades, or not upgrades, but replacing old water pipelines and whatnot in the biggest campground in the national, in the in Rocky Mountain National Park. And so you're going to see some impacts there. And so across the park system, as these dollars go to work, it is going to lead to road delays, time delays, possibly fewer camp campsites in the campgrounds. So let's take a, let's take a couple minutes here at the end of the show and just, and maybe the question goes to Canada too, even though we're, we're right now we're talking about the great American outdoors act. So I'll finish up with the, with us, with Phil and, and Kurt, if I'm a private park owner, how do I follow this news about the great American outdoors act in general? And I know obviously we can do a better job on modern campground of that, but other sources, national parks, traveler, of course, is covering all these things much more comprehensively than we are. Um, how do I stay up to date with these announcements? And then how do I use those announcements to my advantage? And I don't want to sound, I don't mean it to sound selfish, but how do I use it in some ways it is, how do I use those to market my park better to take advantage of that interest of the bigger national, of the like Shenandoah, right? Of the bigger park, of the wider roads, of the better access at all these places to then drive more interest to my private campground. Kurt, you probably could answer that better than I can as far as monitoring uh, what's going on. Our experience has been that it's very decentralized, the announcements coming out of the, the various park districts, ranger districts for the Forest Service. No, you're absolutely right. It is pretty decentralized. And in fact, this morning, um, just before I, I got on the phone with you guys, I got a... Um, an email from a park superintendent wondering if I was on their media distribution list. And so there is a, a disconnect there. Interior department does a pretty good job of sending out um, notices of projects that are well-funded 
But you raise an interesting question, Brian, and I'm not so sure about marketing. But Yellowstone last year saw, as I mentioned, nearly 5 million visitors. And in, in parsing those numbers, they realized that a lot of those visitors, and not a majority, but a lot of them, were staying outside the park, at campgrounds outside the park, at lodges outside the park, and coming in for day trips. And I think if I was a, a private campground owner, Next to Yellowstone, I would certainly promote the fact that Yellowstone's alive and is beautiful. You have to be aware that there's some serious construction going on. And if you stay with us, you can avoid some of that construction and be more strategic in how you visit Yellowstone. Yeah, and that's exactly what I'm talking about. Obviously, Yellowstone is way easier. But if, but if I know somebody is increasing access to a small little state park or a federal land or a BLM or something near me that has a really beautiful river running through it or a couple hiking trails or whatever... That's what I mean. Like, how do I, as a private campground owner, find that information, one, and then take advantage of it to the, in, in my communications to my campers, my potential guests, my marketing to say that this is happening, which feeds the park system too, and the whole RV industry and more people are, it all goes together. But how do I do that to my benefit while also benefiting these public lands that are getting the funding? Well, you know, here at The Traveler, we're a journalism organization. We make our living writing stories. And in the past, we've had organizations help us write those stories by helping fund us. They give us a grant for 10000 or $20,000. And here's what we're going to write about. And I would love to find some money to help us better promote some of these smaller parks out there that people aren't aware of and don't realize the... Um, the beauty or the history or the interpretation that goes on there in the surrounding landscapes. As, as I mentioned, I'm going on a road trip this summer. That's just one aspect. I'm just going to be able to hit four parks. And if, if the park service were over to get into the, the advertising business, I would go after some dollars there to write about some of these other places. So there's 424 units in the national park system. And to have 50% of 300 million people go to just 25 it's a, a disservice to, to those individuals who are unaware of what else exists out there. Okay. So obviously Kurt and I, you have a, we have a, not a long history, but we've known each other for a couple of years. And so we've talked about your funding before and absolutely we hundred percent agree with you. Like the more you can cover the better, but I think what, what we're all getting at is that the national park service, or at least I am thinking in my head, I don't want to put words in anybody else's mouth, but if the national park service doesn't have a PR arm, then maybe that falls to places like National Parks Traveler, like modern campground to a much lesser extent, but National Parks Traveler uh, and other places to raise awareness of these things. And so I think that benefits private campgrounds. I think that benefits certainly the RV industry as a whole. Phil and Eleanor, if you would agree with that, right? You're expanding your coverage in, in Canada, Phil, or Kurt, sorry. Yeah, we are. We are. A year ago, we actually got a Canadian editor and, and she's been doing a great job in raising awareness of some national parks. And uh, to that point of what you mentioned earlier, we got um, a grant from Nova Scotia to promote the national parks in, in that province. And we just come to the, the end of that. And hopefully we did raise awareness. I know we've increased the, the Canadian traffic to the traveler. And uh, I'd like to build on that, not just in Canada, but in Europe and South America, Central America, Asia. Awesome. And then I just want to, Shane and Eleanor, uh, we, I know we've been talking about a lot about the Great American Outdoors Act, but same kind of question to you guys. How do private, and maybe Shane more, this is a, and sorry, Eleanor, maybe this is more of a question for Shane, but how do you then, same question to you, Shane, for private campgrounds, how do they find out what's going on with public lands improvements, crown land, things like that, to take advantage of marketing their park better to people who might want to visit these areas? Yeah, I, I think information for them is 
sporadic. You just have to be aware of what's going on around them. For example, Parks Canada had their 150th year anniversary and where they gave away free Parks Canada passes a few years ago, which created a, a big overflow for, for Parks Canada, especially around uh, the Banff area, where if people were going there, they just couldn't find a site. Uh, a site. Private campground owners should be aware of what's happening around them. And if they see, if they're around a, a public park, and especially in those areas where they get maybe work with the public uh, park or just make sure they get the word out that, hey, we're open if you uh, can't find anything there. So. Awesome. But, you know, yeah. As far as other, I'm not aware of anything else up here. Are you will? No, I would just say, you know, make sure they go to the Parks Canada website because they always have what they're doing, what their activities are. They do have a whole section on accommodations and, and what's happening this particular year. There are other things too, is that I would say that most of, we have Destination Canada, which markets Canada to the world. There's Destination British Columbia and in BC. There's a municipal marketing boards as well. So campground operators could get in touch with some of those marketing boards, destination organizations that help promote and it's a collective. So it could be more cost-effective and less expensive for an individual company, but just to be in some of those marketing opportunities to bring traffic into your area and be a part of that as well. Yeah, that's an excellent suggestion. Joining your local tourism board, your chamber of commerce, your CVB, your, you know, or what you're talking about, all those destination marketing organizations, because to, to our point, they are promoting both private campgrounds who are their members and national parks and local attractions and museums, and they're helping drive that. And so obviously they're probably following all that news too. And so that's a good source of information, but ultimately it's awareness. And so I think that it sounds like to me that we need to get some more funding for national parks traveler if we can, but in general, Kurt's doing a great job. And, and, and the more he can raise awareness, the more the RV industry, the private campground owners are benefiting. And then obviously I think we can do a better job on modern campground too, not covering national parks specifically, because that's Kurt, but doing a, a better job of maybe highlighting some of the things the Great American Outdoor Act is doing and, and some of the other improvements and things like that to camping specifically. But are you up for the challenge? I'm, I'm trying to spend money as fast as I can. So the more writers I can put to work telling these stories, the happier I'll be. Awesome. If we can move more yeah, RVs and Eleanor and Phil will be happy and so will Shane. Absolutely. All right. Any guys, any closing thoughts before we wrap up the show? I know we went all over the place and didn't really have a plan for today, but I think it turned out fairly well. We had a pretty nice discussion. Nope. The only thought I have is just to wish Brian a happy birthday again. Yeah. Happy birthday. Thank you. I appreciate it. Um, just another day, but super excited to be here on the show as always. Thank you guys. Really appreciate you joining us and, and committing to us once a month here. We'll see you all in, in another month or so, but just as a reminder, we are also available as a podcast on Apple, Spotify, Google, all those kinds of places. So if you can listen to our show afterwards, if you missed it, also archives of our show and MC Fireside Chats. We've had a lot of good discussions. Kurt's been a repeat guest. Phil and Eleanor have been here a couple of times. So make sure you go back, check out their conversations. And just again, all of us are tied together. All of us are working together. All of us feed each other, the RV industry, to the outdoor rec, to the national parks, to the public lands, to the private campgrounds, to everybody. And the more that we're aware of what everybody else is doing, the more we can help each other continue to succeed even beyond what we're already doing independently. So thank you guys for watching. I appreciate it. Uh, and we'll see you next week. Thank you. Thanks for watching this episode of MC Fireside Chats, hosted by Brian Searle and Kara Sismadia. Have a suggestion for a future show or want to see your campground or company as part of an episode? An episode?
email us at hello at moderncampground.com. Join us next week for another episode. And don't miss the latest outdoor hospitality news and commentary from around the world at moderncampground.com.